Costa Rica Travel Pass is a paid sponsor of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Costa Rica Travel Pass helps families enjoy Costa Rica flexibly, independently, and affordably. A family of four can enjoy a week in Costa Rica for under $1,200 plus airfare. If you're ready for an out-of-the-bus vacation that your family will always remember, visit Costa Rica Travel Pass at CostaRicaTravelPass.com or calling 1-877-780-7277. Mormon Discussion Podcast is an effort to help Latter-day Saints like you strengthen your faith and to support you in your trials of faith. This podcast operates on the donations of listeners like you. To help this podcast, please consider making a donation at mormondiscussion.podbean.com. On the right-hand side, about halfway down. Thank you. Come thou fount of every blessing Tune my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of Welcome to praise. another episode of Mormon Discussion. I am your host, Bill Real. I'm grateful to have you with us today. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, but you're only going to find the most recent 20 or so episodes. So please check out the podcast at its host site, mormondiscussion.podbean.com. That's mormondiscussion, all one word, dot P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Dot com. You can also find us on Facebook under the name Mormon Discussion, all one word. Now, to what you've been waiting to hear. Karen Meacham, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Great. Grateful to have you on. A few weeks back, you had emailed me uh, explaining that uh, you wanted to share your story and maybe even more than that, you really just wanted to hear more of a female voice in the podcast, which I totally agree with. And I'm grateful to have you on today. And, and in talking to you, we both felt it would be just a wonderful idea to share your story and some of your experiences. So, Karen, I just wonder if you might tell us a little bit about uh, yourself, whatever you feel like you'd like to share with us. Um. Okay. I am I'm married. I have four children. I um, live in Utah right here in Happy Valley. <laughs> um. I don't know much else. What do you want me to share? I guess you have you four. Said, you say you have I didn't four say kids. that. Yeah, four. That's all four right. Children. Yeah, I've got uh, I've got four kids as well, and so that makes life. I know you know without even knowing your situation. I know that makes life very hectic. Kids kids are a ball of joy, but uh, once in a great while, they they cause my hair to change color. Oh yeah, yeah. So. I feel like the responsibility of raising children is. Ah! Makes me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So I wonder if, if just starting us off, if you can share with us your growing up in the church and some of your early experiences uh, uh, working your way through those early years. Sure. Um, I was raised, so I was born and raised LDS. Um, my parents were both born and raised LDS. Um, my mother um, had a very different upbringing than my father. Um, my father had, or my, my grandfather actually had quite a influence. So my paternal, so my father's father, um, had quite an influence on, um, us children growing up. I think part of it was because we grew up, um, my grandfather was only two houses away from us. Um, he was very, um, you know, I, I, 
I don't, because, you know, again, we talk about, I don't want to throw him under the bus because especially as I've grown up and, and gotten older, I've recognized the human side of everybody. And, you know, he had his good qualities and good traits, and he was actually a very generous man. He was able to be a very successful businessman. He helped a lot of people. He donated a lot of money to BYU, things like that. But he was very hard on us, um, his children and his grandchildren, because he really wanted us to reflect um, I guess that successful side of him, you know, um, and I often felt growing up and, you know, it's funny because you think, well, where do these things come from? Where do these feelings come from? Did somebody do something specific, you know, little things like that. And I don't, I don't really know how to place a finger on it other to, than to say that I always felt very compared. Um, I don't feel like it came from my parents much, but I do feel very compared to a lot of my cousins growing up. Um, there's a lot of success in the family, a lot of Ivy League education, um, and I never felt like I was successful in those type of things. Academically, I always kind of considered myself, you know, average. Um, some of the other pursuits that I tried to make, um, I was compared to an aunt, for instance. I had um, an aunt that... I, I always loved horses and I rode horses and I had an aunt that was equally when she was young did that and she became a rodeo queen <clears throat> for the Lehigh Roundup Rodeo. This would have been back in the 60s. And so I tried these type of endeavors and I was not very successful at them. And I remember my grandpa often talking about, oh, well, Miriam was, you know, rodeo queen. And I kind of I don't know that it was ever something he intended for me, but I felt um you know, like I failed a lot in things that I wanted to be recognized with. Um, and I, you know, I kind of gotten, you know, like a lot of other kids where sometimes you just get into the wrong crowd. And, you know, I got to a point in my life where I felt like I would, the thing that I was good at was being bad. You know, I, I know how to be a bad girl. <laughs> and it got me some, you know, I think attention and other things. I, um, <clears throat> You know, I made a lot of poor choices that way, you know, and it's interesting because I never felt that my parents, like my father, my grandfather was very um, controlling and invasive almost in, in our upbringing. My dad has always been very passive. Even now he is. He doesn't ever like to tell us what to do. Um, it's hard to get advice out of him. And I think it's because he likes to be the opposite of the way his own father was. Um, and for better or worse, uh, I, I may have contributed, I don't know, a little bit towards sure. some of the decisions I made. I don't know. It's it's kind of funny because you're just like, I don't know how it all happened. Um, my parents made some attempts when I was 15 to send me to kind of this troubled teens program. Um, I was in that for about nine months before they pulled me. It wasn't, it was more of a kind of a behavioral control. Um, my parents, I think, were really worried that I would get involved with drugs um, there had been a little bit of um, alcohol consumption, but not significant amounts at that point. Um, and most of it was just being very promiscuous. Um, and the program itself wasn't really doing much. The, the, the man who ran the program was supposed to counsel with me weekly, things like that that he wasn't doing. And I think my parents just said, forget it, pulled me out of that program um, and then kind of put me... Um, right back into the environment I was in only a little bit worse because I'd lost a lot of my friends um, at that point. And um, by the time I was 17, it was just after my senior year started was when I found out I was pregnant. Um, my parents did have me in counseling at the time, and that's how it, it came out um, was through that. It was actually through LDS Social Services. I was seeing a counselor at the time. 
Gotcha. Can I ask a couple questions? Yeah, go ahead. In regards to your grandfather, was he a a prominent member in the area? I mean, yes. Can you tell us a little more about that? Because I think it sets up the story a little bit too. Yes, and I should uh, maybe sharing a little that. more about him. Well, that's okay. Um, yes, he he was prominent. He was quite prominent. I mean, maybe not as much now that he's passed away, and and you know. You kind of lose that. I know that he had been in the state legislator, late legislature at some point. Um, he also had served as a um, mission president in Germany. Um, this was back in the, let's see, 60s, the late 60s as well. He had developed a relationship with um, President Monson, um, who he actually spoke at both my grandmother and my grandfather's funeral. So he had quite a relationship with them. Um, he also served as a temple president at the Provo Temple, um, as well as a stake president. Um, he was recognized quite a bit uh, in the community. Um, so he was kind of my, you know, the, the influence that I had that, that this is what God is like almost. You know what I mean? I, it's kind of hard you know, as a child, that this is your influence. And since he was always kind of the more authoritative figure in our lives, that I think that's one of the reasons why I struggled a lot, because I always kind of felt like I would have an inability to measure up. So I don't know if that helps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're not the first one to say that. In several of the interviews I've done, either on the air or off the air, I'll talk to people who, growing up in the church as a youth, you have certain people that you look to and say, they represent the church. Yeah. Uh, and so you see your grandfather who's serving in prominent callings, who has a relationship with general authorities. Right. And in some ways you say that's what the ideal Mormon needs to be like. Correct. And in his defense, I think at times there has been this stigma that you have to make sure that your household or your the people that you uh, you have this extended influence in Represent this good LDS altogether family that you're, everybody's where they need to be doing what they need yes. to be doing. And, and I just, I feel for you. I, I, having joined the church at 17, I struggle to grasp that. But I guess on some level, even coming to the church at that point, there were certain people I picked out who to me epitomized Mormonism only to find out years later that their paradigm really wasn't as, uh, as workable as I thought it was, if that makes sense. Where they have their own, I guess, flaws and weaknesses. Is that what you're saying? Right. But, but you don't realize that those are flaws and weaknesses at the time. You think that oh, that's just the yes. way church, the church members are. Yes. I see what and, you're and saying. And so it kind of sets up, uh, it almost sets you up to, to fall a little bit. It does, I think. So you turn 17, you, uh, you're pregnant. How do you, I mean, do you go right to your parents and, and share that news with them? No. It was, you know, because I felt like such a disappointment to them at the time. And so when I initially found out I was pregnant, it, it was almost like this denial phase where for a couple of weeks, it was almost like, you know, I take a pregnancy test, but yet uh, it's positive. But yet I'm like, oh, it's, you know, I don't want to deal with it. Um, but it became difficult <laughs> after a few weeks because I really got very severe, severe morning sickness. And since I had no, I mean, there was no internet at the time and I had no way of knowing how do you handle this? I was losing a ton of weight. Um, one of my sisters thought I was a bulimic and I was in my therapist's office one night and kind of just broke down because I think he was quizzing me because I was talking about how I just couldn't hold anything down and, and he started quizzing me and he says, well, are you, you know, trying to figure out if I was bulimic? And I broke down and I said, I was angry at him for thinking that. And I said, right. I'm not, 
I'm not a bulimic, I'm pregnant. And that ended that session very quickly. And <laughs> he got me in contact, and I believe it was that next day, he got me in contact with the therapist that primarily worked with the unwed mothers through LDS Social Services. Um, I met with her that next, I believe it was in the morning, and she said to me, we're going to go home right now, and we're going to tell your parents. So she came home with me. And we, I was just going to tell my mother initially, but it was right around lunchtime. My father came home at the same time and she says, well, this is better time than any. And so I told them, um, and I wanted to climb under the kitchen table and hide. And so that's how it came out. Um, it, I'd take it. My mother actually, she was, she was very calm. She gave me a hug. Um, she told me it was going to be okay. My dad, he's always been very quiet. The only thing he wanted to know is who the father was because I was not seeing anybody at the time. Um, and that was about the extent of it other than, you know, talking about how the services that LDS social services could provide for me. And then that was about it. I mean, my father is not, he never yells. He never gets upset, um, in that way. Um, so that was the main reaction. It was kind of, you know, when you say that this counselor went with you, I thought that was kind of uh, the supportive thing to do, the right thing to do, rather than just say, hey, I'm going to call your parents and right. you go home and tell them that at least she was next to you when, they, when you said that. Yes. And it sounds like your parents, obviously that's always going to catch a mom and a dad off guard. Right. But it sounds like they were supportive. They were, yes. How, how did the extended family handle it? You know, and obviously I'm pointing specifically to your grandfather. <laughs> how did How did your extended family take the news? You know, it's interesting. He didn't, he found out shortly, let's see, it was, because I found out that I was pregnant probably about July, let's see, not July because it was like September. So probably about September, October is when I found out I was pregnant and my grandfather didn't know for several months they kept that from him. Um, I do know that it was probably in about December that he found out and he called a meeting with my parents. That was something he did a lot where he would call them for a meeting or call them to tell them what to do. <laughs> and they went up and he told them that he wanted me. He, they actually had a condo down in the St. George area and um, they had had an unwed mother that had used the condo for a period of time that had placed a baby for adoption. It wasn't a relative of the family, just somebody that he had because he was generous um, that he had allowed to stay there so that she could be away from people while she made that decision. And so they, it was a place for her to stay and be supported. And he told my parents that he wanted me to do the same thing. He wanted me to go down to this condo in St. George to disappear for several months and then to place my son for adoption. And um, they said they wouldn't make me do that, that it was my decision to make. And he was upset by that. Um, he didn't talk to me for over a year after that. My Sister has a memory. His birthday's on, or was on um, January 1st, and they always would do a party, the extended family, every year. And so it was shortly after that meeting, I came to that party, and traditionally we always gave Grandpa a hug, and I went to give him a hug, and he wouldn't hug me back. And my wow. sister, she still has this memory of it. She says, I remember that. I still remember that, and how impactful that was to her. Um, I, you know, I, at the time it was upsetting, I think is that, like I said, as I've worked through it, he was human. He, you know, he was doing the best that I think he could with what he knew. Um, he came from a different generation. I think there's a lot of things, but it was hurtful. Um, and of course it kind of sets you up for feeling like, well, then I don't really belong here, you know, if that makes yeah. sense. So your grandfather finds out and he gives you the silent treatment. I can only, you know, you talk about 
going to give him a hug on his birthday and him not doing that. I can only imagine how heart-wrenching that is, right? You're his granddaughter yeah. and how hard that was. Uh, looking back now, is that still a painful moment or have you just kind of learned to, to see him f- in spite of his flaws and weaknesses? You know, there were moments later on where he, you know, he's always been a difficult person for me to um, be close to, I think. Um, that moment still stands out to me. So to say, yeah, it was impactful. Um, he never apologized either. The only thing he ever did, and I think this was his way of making amends with me, was he, um, after I'd gone through school, um, you know, I was able to get my, because I, I went through college later and I got my registered nursing um, license. And it was just after that that he said that he was proud of me and he proud of what I had done with my life. Um, but that's the only real reconciliation he ever made. I, I do, I don't feel like, you know, I love my grandfather. I do feel like I love him. Um, it will be interesting to see what type of relationship we will have in the next life. On the other side. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I forgive him. I know there are some, I, well, and maybe I shouldn't say this. So this might be one of those where I'm like, take it out, take it okay, out. Sure. <laughs> but I do know that I have one of my aunts who has stated she doesn't care if she ever sees him again. And I don't feel that way at all. Um, I, which is really sad, you know, so I feel like I'm, I'm better in, not better than her, but I, it, it's better f- the way I feel about him because I don't feel that way. I feel like I can offer him forgiveness because I want grace. I want forgiveness. So I can offer that back. Right. As you're sharing that story, it reminds me of an interesting story in church history, which is President David O. McKay. And his niece left the church. Her name was Fawn Brody. And she wrote a very critical book about Joseph Smith and the early church history that essentially showed Joseph to be a fraud. And when she did this, President McKay gave her the silent treatment for some time. But then towards the end of his life, he reached out to her. And by the end of his life, he made the comment that she was his favorite niece and said that to her. And I I think on some level, we just have to kind of accept people in spite of those, those shortcomings where they, they encounter some experience that doesn't fit in their box and they do the best they can to deal with it. And they do, they, they deal with it the way they think others expect them to. They think they're doing the right thing. But looking back, I think all of us look back on some of those experiences and say, man, I was so far off base there and shame on me. And, it's, and, I, and I feel bad that he didn't come to you and say that, but I, I hope that that's the case. And like you said, when you get to the other side, uh, it'll be interesting to see what kind of relationship uh, that is. So you you have your grandfather who is suggesting that you go away for a while and give the baby up. You have your parents who are being supportive. Are there other people who are being a voice in your ear? You know, there was a lot of people. <laughs> they started to come out of the woodwork. Everybody had advice, huh? Oh, yes. Um, you know, and people in the ward that would off, you know, I remember going on a walk one day and there's a really nice lady and she's actually still, cause I'm actually in the ward I grew up in. How crazy is that? Um, and she's still in the ward. And I remember she pulled over as I was walking and she started talking to me about it. This couple that she knows that's adopted. I think they'd adopted two children or one or two children. And they just wanted a boy because I found out very early I was having a boy. And she starts talking to me about the things that they gave to these other girls that had given them their babies. And, um, you know, just trying to almost entice you. It's interesting how people will behave sometimes because not normally you don't 
talk that way to people. Um, and she's a really nice lady, but it was a very, um, uncomfortable thing for me. Um, I also had obviously with, uh, LDS social services, their pressure is very high towards adoption. Um, of course my bishop, his advice. Um, I also had other extended family, um, telling me, you know, I had one aunt take me for a drive one day and she told me about a girl that she knew that had given a baby up for adoption and I want to get you in contact with her so she can talk to you about her experience. Um, and I recognize that my experience was mine. I know some people get the opposite influence. Um, I know some people where they're told that if they, they place a baby for adoption, how horrible they are. Um, I didn't have that at all. Most of the pressure came towards adoption. Um, there's quite a few girls. I went to the support group that they have at LDS Social Services, so there's quite a few girls that I became in contact with that had both placed and were going to place for adoption. I really felt a lot of social pressure for that to be the right decision. Sure. But I never, I never got to that. Did, did you ever waffle at all on that decision? I mean, or, or were you pretty much saying that you're stalwart the whole time? No. Looking it around and saying, everybody's pushing for me to do this, but I am not doing this. You know, it wasn't like that initially. Um, when I first, in fact, I remember it very distinctly. Um, I went to one of their groups. It was the very first group I went to with LDS Social Services. And it included a panel of, I believe, about three girls that had placed their babies for adoption, where they talked about their experience. Um, and I... Because at the time, I mean, I had been the type of child who had said, sorry, there it is, thunder, um, who had said, I don't want to have children. I had plans. There were things I was going to do. So a baby was not something that I was interested in. And so when I went to this group and I heard this panel of girls and they talk about how, yes, it was a painful thing, but they got through it, I thought, okay, I can do this. I went home that evening. I was feeling very optimistic about it. Uh, one of my girlfriends called me and started talking about wanting to do a baby shower for me. And I remember thinking, well, I'm not going to do a baby shower. You know, just I'm going to be giving this baby up for adoption. I didn't have the heart to tell her at the time. And then it was literally that night that I had, and I'm not going to talk a lot of detail, but I had a dream. And I woke up. I remember, I mean, obviously, I woke up bawling in the middle of the night. And from that point on, I mean... The feeling and the experience that I had, I knew I could not give him up. I couldn't do it. I knew I couldn't. And at that point, it just turned into absolute turmoil emotionally because I could not. I felt like I couldn't tell people I've had this, you know, do you call it spiritual? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I have a very strong spiritual connection with my son that obviously um, occurred before he was born, before either right. of us were born. And I don't know how you explain that to people. I mean, even, even out, you know, even within the church, I mean, outside the church, but within the church, how do you explain that to somebody when all of the counsel is opposite of that? And, and whenever I bring, I, I tried to explain to one of my aunts this experience and she absolutely ignored it. It didn't exist to her. It didn't seem to have any bearing, but yet it had that kind of impact on me. Um, right, right. I mean, you look at the way the church has instructed this over the years, it's almost like no matter what you think this is the Lord's answer is to give your baby up for adoption, that that is across the board the suggestion for all unwed uh, pregnant women to to make that choice. And so for you to have 
a spiritual experience in the in the face of that advice or that counsel it's almost like where are you getting your answer from because the church answer is this one and you're you know yes. it's it's answer a and you're coming up with answer z yes and i can only imagine how you felt oh it was it was it was so hard <laughs> cuz even when i made the decision you know, I, a lot of things that I, and you know, part of that influence was good because it made me very determined to prove people wrong because there was always that you'll do it again. You'll, um, you'll never get married. You will live in poverty. You, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, I instantly, and my parents were always very supportive in that whatever decision you make, we will support you. But I obviously had to do something. It's not like they would just keep me in their home forever and I didn't have to progress. But my father, um, He's a very generous man, and he um, paid for my college, so I didn't have to. I mean, I was in a circumstance where I didn't have to go outside of, you know, um, my family to seek support. He helped me get through school, and um, I graduated with not high honors, but honors. <laughs> awesome. Um, but so some of that influence was probably good, but some of it obviously made me feel like I didn't belong because if I had this, you almost like. Well, then maybe I'm incapable. If I didn't get this answer, then maybe I'm incapable of feeling the spirit. Like that experience, although that impactful to me, if that wasn't the spirit, then I don't know how to feel the spirit. Right, right. What happened to your activity at this point? After he was born, I I fluctuated in activity. My mother very much wanted me to continue to go to church. And because I lived with them, I felt obligated to. My heart wasn't in it. Um. I, I had a calling. I think they had me teaching sunbeams for a while, but I would go on again, off again. I would do, you know, six months, then I'd quit for a while. My mom would beg me to go back. The bishop would call me in, you know, and, and so then I'd start activity again. And once I graduated and got into the position where I could move out, so it was right after I moved out, um, and I got married right about the same time as well, it ended. And I quit going, um, gosh, it was probably about five years. So I kind of consider those couple years with my son, not real activity, but I was still kind of going. But then after my husband and I, we actually, I think we got, we went through the temple after we had been married seven years. So we started activity six years after we got married. Gotcha. What, so let's now start to walk us through this, this coming back to the church. So you're inactive, you're inactive for six years. What causes this turnaround? What causes you and your family uh, to begin to to look back into going to church again. You know, it's kind of funny because my husband, I kind of picked him because he was a, you know, a little bit of a rebel. He, you know, he had earrings and piercings and he was kind of, you know, freaky. <laughs> and and I, but I knew he'd been raised in the church and for some bizarre reason that was important to me that right. um, we had a, a similar background, but I wanted somebody that wanted to be an active too. So I chose right. him for that reason. I do remember asking him before we got married if he had a testimony, and he told me he did. Um, and, of course, I thought that was weird, that then if you do, then why don't you go to church? But he was lazy, and he wanted to be that way. And, you know, we kind of picked up the lifestyle, um, you know, where he was drinking a little bit, but not like we were alcoholics by any means, but, you know, beers and um, wine and things like that where we kind of started picking up that type of, lifestyle where it just became easy. And that's the thing is I relate to those statements that people make when they say, um, when they leave the church that I feel better than I ever felt before, because I think a lot of times our own hangups we place because to me, I think I need to own 
my reaction to other people's mistakes. Like I shouldn't place other people's mistakes on God or Christ, but I did. And I think sometimes um, it's easy to just kind of walk away from that and be like, you know what? I don't have to live up to your crap anymore, you know? Right. And so it, it just became very easy. And I was very comfortable in that. It was my husband who, interestingly enough, it was after my grandmother, my father's mother passed away and we went to the funeral. Um, President Monson spoke and then he, you know, shook all our hands as we walked out. And my husband made some jokes about how he thought his earrings were going to, what did he say? Like they'd zap out of his ears when he, when he <laughs> shook his hand and, it was shortly after that that the missionaries showed up at our home I within the month. Um, and I believe that my my grandmother probably had some influence on that, but I was not open to it at all. My husband was more open to it. He started letting them come teach us, but he was still kind of lazy about it, and we kind of just eh, didn't, didn't pursue it much. Um, probably about four or five months later, we, we were living in a home we wanted to sell and then build another home. And so my parents said, well, you can live with us. And so for, um, but my mother did say, which is her rule, if you're in my house, you've got to go to church. Right. So we, we started going to appease her. But my husband, you know, it's funny because he always, I think he always wanted to kind of have that excuse. Um, my son at the time was nine, uh, so he would have been considered a convert. So they um, started sending missionaries over again, and we kind of all took the discussions together just prior to him getting baptized. And then, the, you know, it just it just gradually moved from there. Um, I was really slow, I would say, about my reconversion. I know that we went through the temple a year later, but I don't think I was ready. Although, when are you ready? Right. <laughs> right. So yeah, the, yeah. The temple is a. Uh... A unique experience that when you go through for the first time that even the prepared aren't, I don't think, prepared, uh, for, for all that goes on there. Um, so your, your return to the church is, you say this slow process. Obviously it's it, a huge impact comes from staying with mom and mom laying down the rules, which, yeah. which good for mom. Yeah. <laughs> She's a good lady. You, uh, yeah. And you, so you come back to church. How are you doing today? You know, I, I think I'm doing very well. <laughs> You know, it took a really long time because I really struggled. You know, it's funny because through the reconversion process, you know, there's some things about church and church history that I didn't really care about as a teenager. You know, polygamy, whatever. You know, because I remember learning about it in seminary and things like that, but it was almost like you'd gloss over it and I didn't really care. But then you go through the temple and I'm sitting here thinking, well, you know what? I don't like that. (laughs) I don't know if I'm all for that. And so I started to have a lot of... um emotionally painful things, trying to deal with some of the church history, things that you didn't always know. Um, I think, though, my personality, like I stumbled across Eugene England's article. I'm sure you've read it or heard of it, you know, talking about um, fidelity and polygamy. And um, Is this the one where the, the church is more true than the gospel or something like that? I can't remember if that was a statement. I know it was in dialogue. It's a really okay. great article. I wish I remembered the name, but it it um it kind of talks about it that basically his idea and his belief behind polygamy was that it was more of an abrianic test that it wasn't intended to be for the next life. And, right. And it's funny because I mean I know that it's not a doctrinal thing by any means, but it brought me a lot of peace. And over time, as I found more information, things on fair, um, 
where, and not the, the hostility type stuff, but more of the stuff that brings me peace. And I think being able to be okay with, we don't all, we don't have all the answers and it's okay for me because I do tend to be more logic minded with things. Um, I, you know, I've started to feel like it's okay to believe on faith, you know, <laughs> sometimes I think that makes you, cause sometimes I feel like, Oh, well, that makes me kind of crazy, you know? Um, but you know, I, I see all of the goodness that has come and, or, you know, kind of like planting that seed where, you know, doing, cause it's always been really difficult for me. I, I think I still struggle a lot with some of the cultural things in the church. Right. Um, but doing the, just the doctrinal stuff, like with my own family, just reading the, you know, cause I started to do those type of things where I'm like, fine, we'll see if this works, you know, where, uh, we'll do family home meeting. We'll read scriptures. It's almost like this challenge to God. I'll say my prayers and we'll see what happens. And then, you know, you do start to see, you know, the way your mind changes the way you, yeah. and it just, it happens. Um, right. So that's where I'm at. <laughs> that's beautiful. Let me ask you this. Just this is kind of maybe a side issue, but you brought it up, and I and I want to kind of explore this for a moment. Mentioning that in some ways, up until finding Eugene England's essay, you you t- were troubled by the idea that there was polygamy on the other side. Yes. Do you think that's something a lot of sisters struggle with? You know, it's funny. I think yes, there are some. I don't think everybody's open about talking about it. I think in large part, because I've noticed it's almost like it's blasphemous if you ever bring up the idea that, you know, because one of the ways that I'm able to be active and to go to church is believing that it it doesn't exist in the next life because I feel that way. Does that make sense? But I think a lot of women, I think, are afraid to say anything about it um, because, you know, nobody wants to bring up controversy. (laughs) Sure. <laughs> and especially women, you know, they tend to want to just everybody to be happy and we don't want to talk about that kind of stuff. And, you know, sometimes like there's a lot of sisters that I know that like one, in, for instance, that talks about how she's going to be a polygamist wife because she was the second wife of a man who was sealed to his first wife and she was sealed to him. And you don't want to take from them, you know, like right. I don't want, because I don't really know. But for me, that's not reward. <laughs> Right. It's not part of your celestial kingdom. No, no. Right. The reason I bring it up, we had a a friend over for dinner the other night, and and she's very much uh, a deep thinker, uh, deeper than I am, and and nuanced in the way that I am. And as we're talking about that issue, my, my wife piped in that she had always been taught that women were just generally more righteous than men, that... When we get to heaven, there's just going to be more women than there is men. And you're, you're chuckling. And as I, as I thought about that, I tried to tell my wife, I'm explaining to her. I said, you know, I don't think Heavenly Father, when he's creating the female spirits and the male spirits says, sorry, male spirits, but you're behind the eight ball and a lot fewer of you are going to make it. (laughs) And sorry about your luck, but I've made you this way. But you know, your chance of getting there is like a camel fit through the eye of a needle. And I just don't see it. And so, I would allow for it to be the exception to the rule. Yes. And that for some sisters to be multiple spouses to a husband. And maybe there's multiple men that are spouses to a sister who, you know, got married twice to two men who were only married to her, you know, with one passing away. But I don't think, I think it's the exception to the rule. I think generally speaking, the amount of men and women in heaven is going to be relatively even. And if not, then I want a refund because 
uh, you know, it isn't right that I was created to be a male and I'm already got uh, a slim to none shot. You're, you know? you're set up to fail. <laughs> right. So it just doesn't make sense when we look at the gospel. Take a step back. Forget all the things that people tell us over the years and just dig down and try to find out what really are those those diamonds in the rough of doctrine. And, and using logic and using common sense, figure out really what the gospel is. And I think we're so much better if we can start thinking about things that way. Well, and I, and I think that a lot of the things that you're talking about, that was addressed in this article that Eugene England wrote, where he talks about why would God not know what he was doing when he created his beings, you know, these spirits. Right. And he went through a lot of the, you know, the population, a lot of boys die before the age of accountability. Um, you know, several things that kind of, dispel some of those myths i think you know along with the idea that you know we are we are equal um and we're and it says so in the scriptures that we are male female black white it talks about that kind of stuff and so i think that's um we're all subject to sin and i think sometimes too that i mean the way we we look at sin I, i mean there's a lot of things that i think as a woman i do that men don't generally do that can be very damaging to others you know like you know, women tend to be a little bit more cattier and harder on each other. And, right. and I think those things are sinful that could be equally, um, wrong that could keep you out of the celestial kingdom, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I just, I, I hate to say that because I don't know, but my heart feels as though that won't be the case. <laughs> it helps me be active. <laughs> sure. And, and I would agree with you. And, and that's the same way I see things as, uh, as you've gone through all those experiences of growing up, having been inactive in the church and now being back as an active member, have you ever run into any experiences as an adult oh. that were similar to you having been a, a pregnant, uh, unwed sister Yes, that you've had a chance to have an impact on others? You know, I haven't. Generally, I don't like to be invasive um, unless somebody asks me. I kind of hang back. Sure. Um, there was a gal... Um, in, uh, she's not in our ward anymore. Um, there was a split. Um, but I had found out through, um, some friends, actually one of the women was a young women's president and, um, one of her counselors. And we were actually just on it cause we're friends. We were on a, um, girls night, um, out to a movie and we were all visiting in, um, the car after. And I had asked about this particular girl because she had been one of my activities days girls. And I knew that she had been struggling cause some of the other you know, women and young women that I'm friends with, they had talked a little bit about some of the things that she'd been struggling with. And I had asked about her, got very quiet in the car. And she said, uh, well, I just found out today that she's pregnant. And, um, this particular sister has actually, she had adopted a child of her own. And then the counselor in the car, her cousin had placed a baby for adoption. And I was sitting there and they both know my circumstance and neither of them asked me at all much insight or they didn't want to know anything they both just kind of went into um how to get her in contact with the cousin um of the one counselor so that she could talk to her about placing a baby for adoption and and it kind of just started going down that road and i felt like you know it's really not my place to say i know that this girl um did go to lds social services and for a time she was saying she was going to place her baby for adoption however after she had him she didn't um, I know this young women's leader was very upset about it. Didn't, didn't even want to visit her or bring her a gift after that. And I felt wow. horrible. And so I, right. I wrote her a little note. It was very simple. I got her a gift 
Um, I think I got her some diapers and a few other small things, and I took them over to the home. And I just wrote a little note that I told her, you know, in, you know, in the end, it's going to be all right. Because one of the things that I always kind of focused on was a comment that they made while I was going to the social services group where they said, you know, you need to think more in terms of five years, not in a year, because in five years, you're the only one that's going to be living with this decision. It won't be your family because, you know, by then you should be old enough. You know, most of us at that time would be out of the home. Um, and, and it's you that has to live with that decision, not not your siblings, not your, you know, I mean, there's impacts to other people, but really it needs to be about you. And I remember telling her, you know, it's going to be okay. In the end, it'll be okay. It's it's really more focusing on doing, you know, having that connection with your Heavenly Father and that it's all right to love and have your child. Um, and her, she never, she never, I think she, you know, she's young. She was 15 and I think she was very shy about it, but her mother did contact me and told me that it had come very timely, that she'd really been struggling a lot of tears. And I told her, you know, that's how it was for me. <laughs> but she did tell me that I had brought her a lot of hope that my life is an example to her. And it hasn't extended past that. I didn't, again, I don't like to be invasive unless people are like sure come over come tell us what to do I don't like to I probably get that from my father but um I do think that it was helpful and I I hope that she sees that um now I think she's still um I mean I don't know much they split the ward so there's not I don't see her very much anymore I do occasionally run into her 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 father actually takes the little boy he's probably about a year and a half now out on walks a lot and he is just cute Oh my gosh, she's super cute and he is the best grandpa ever. So I think she's in a good environment and I think that she can be successful and, and I hope that I was helpful in some way. <laughs> but you know, it's hard because, you know, that, like that moment in that car where you feel like it, it's almost a, a silent unsaid, well, we don't want her to do what you did. <laughs> you know, like you've done right. something wrong. Right. Well, I, I can say this. I absolutely appreciate that story. Because in the face of everybody giving her a certain line of advice, there's at least one other voice saying, hey, it's your decision. And, and no matter what everybody else says, it's really between you and Heavenly Father. And, and you ought not to, to have your world shaken down because of what everybody else thinks. Right. Uh, and so I just, I want to say thank you for, for doing that and for being a, a voice, at least showing that there are alternatives besides, uh, what the majority wants somebody to do. Um, in Within Mormonism, are there certain people that uh, have had an impact on you, certain people that you really connect with? I just, I want to get an idea of, of who's shaped your, your vision of the church, your vision of, of Mormon doctrine or theology. You or know, I think thinking one of the bigger influences, I really like Terrell Gibbons. You know, prior to, you know, obviously I haven't read everything that he's done. But um, prior to reading some of his stuff and listening, because I've, I've, I've heard a lot of his speeches, things like that, some of his interviews, prior to that, I don't think I could, I ever felt, you know, I, I having my Savior, believing that my Savior loves me was easy, but believing that my Heavenly Father loved me wasn't. I don't know why, but listening to him and a lot of the stuff that he's, um, that he brings out really it it's just this piece, you know, um, where and it's much easier for me to put aside some of those things, you know, the imperfections of others, 
and to actually see God as a being who loves me. Um, I hadn't, it had been something I'd very much struggled with prior to that. So I really liked Terrell Givens. <laughs> I really, really liked Terrell Givens. Sure. And then there's, um, you know, fair, like, like I said, fair, there's, um, there's been a few speeches that I've listened to meant a lot to me. Um, I, I probably couldn't put a specific name. I think Wendy, she had, Wendy Ulrich. Yeah. She had a great one. I think it was in 2005, maybe. Is that right? I can't. Um, or maybe she's given several talks over the years. Okay. And I, I don't know. There was what one each of them, them are that um, was very impactful to me. Um, and then, you know, there's been people in my, you know, like for instance, um, my mother, she's always had um, a very soft approach. I mean, she has, you know, in my home, we'll go to church, but it's not like a forceful. It was more of a, you would hurt her if you didn't. And she's always had a very soft approach to things when I would come to her with concerns. Like sometimes, you know, I've gone to her before and I'll say, oh, you know, Joseph Smith could have made this all up. This could be just a pile of crap, you know. And she's she's the type <laughs> that she'll say, well, honey, we all think that sometimes. Where she's able to, you know, kind of just put dispel that you're so different if you think that way. She's like, we all think that way sometimes, you know, where she has very calming influence. Um, That's good. You know, so and then there's been a few friends. Like I can think of some specific women that I'm friends with that have um, have been very embracing of me despite some of my flaws. You know, and they're and they're almost being um, not so mainstream sometimes. So you kind of finding those allies um, that you can go to in the ward. <laughs> right. But that that's probably been my biggest influences. And my husband, he's very because um, he always, like I said, he kind of just well, I believe. But he just didn't want to, you know, do anything. And he always kind of has a calm approach to things that I, some, you know, culturally get upset about. Like, there was a woman one time that was teaching one of my children in primary. And at the time, I wasn't subscribing to the friend because I don't want to have a bunch of magazines in the house. And I didn't want to have to pay for it. And it's all online anyway. And she approached me and told me that I needed to get a friend. And I was really upset by it. And I went to my husband. I'm like, she thinks I'm a horrible mother and I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to raise these kids. And he says, well, good. Let her think that. And she'll spend more time on our kids. Like, like, he kind of takes a more calm approach, which I think has always been helpful to temper me a little bit. Um, You know, you, you mentioned your approach when people are having some experience that rather than dive right in and give your advice that you just kind of, Sit back unless yeah. you're asked to to do so. Yes. And and as you were saying that about ten minutes ago in the interview, the first name that came to mind was Terrell Givens. I think I think Brother Givens is very much that approach. He doesn't force his view on anybody. He offers his insight and says, "Here, here's how I see this beautiful thing, and if you take it for that, great. If not, you know, so be it." But he doesn't ever. He never seems to come across as you're wrong, I'm yeah. right, and here's the way it is. <laughs> and he has. So, I don't know. It's almost like this loving. I don't know. It just it just makes God so much different to me than what I thought. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I was wrong. I was totally wrong. And listening to him, I mean, just some of the things that he embraces that some people in the church get offended about, like the um, the idea that we're not Christians and, and getting upset about that. And I love how he's just more matter-of-factly, but it's so soft in his approach where it's like, well, well, we're not. But guess what? We're better. <laughs> Right. And I'll probably get in trouble for this on the podcast, but I've got kind of a man crush on Terrell Givens. Well, I've thought the I, same thing, you know, like the spiritual crush, you know. <laughs> right. He he just words things beautifully. Yes. He pulls off literature at the flip of a switch. I mean, somebody will say something, he's like, oh, yeah, 
um, you know, he's um, Daniel Day Lewis, you know, he'll just C.S. Lewis and, and, you know, he'll just pull off yes. Shakespeare or whatever. He'll just pull off 10 or different, 10 or 12 different sources yes. for these poems and stories and, and everything ties back into the point he's trying to make. You know, uh, he just, he's a wizard of the English language. Yes. And you know, I wonder if that's one of the, you know, cause my son reminds me of him and maybe like my oldest son that I ended up keeping reminds me of him. With the way he maybe we should interview him next. You should. That kid is okay. just fascinating. <laughs> he, I mean, we'll have to do that. He pulls out things that I, I mean, he just philosophically, he's. But I've said to people a million times, his spirit is much older than mine, um, by a thousand years. He's very mature. I don't know. It's it's very interesting. <laughs> awesome. But anyway, I uh, I want to ask you one last question. And I want to tie this into the whole purpose of the podcast, which is to help those who are struggling. So I know that among those listening to this podcast, that there are going to be some who have had a similar experience that you've had, where they were pregnant and single and young and also felt the same pressure you did. There are going to be some who happen to listen to this podcast who also still see the gospel in a naive way. And they're going to think that pressuring someone to give up their child is always the right thing to do. And there may even be a young sister or two who happens to catch wind of this podcast because somebody shares it with them who is in, in that moment of that experience, trying to figure out what decision to make. And I wondered if I could just finish up getting your thoughts on what advice you might give to someone who is pregnant or somebody who is ready to talk to someone who's pregnant uh, in the situation that you were in. You know, probably the first thing that I would emphasize is that, especially because I've talked to other girls that have made, obviously, the other decision. And it's it's interesting because sometimes um, I've heard them speak, you know, say some of the same things that I'm saying, only in the opposite, where they were given a lot of pressure on the opposite end to keep a baby, and they knew they weren't supposed to. Um, and they got confirmation of that. And so I think the thing that I would emphasize is that, and this even goes more towards the whole individual experience and your individual relationship with your heavenly father. And that you need, you know, you need to make the decision on your knees. Um, but, I, but I believe that if you do, you can come to a decision and that it can be right either way. I think going through this experience, I am less judgmental of any girl, regardless of the decision she makes, because I know what it's like to go through that. And I also understand the logistic reason why the pressure is put on girls to do that. Because, I mean, obviously, it's it's easier. There's more guarantees on the other end. Um, I think unknowns make people afraid. Um, but I think, too, that if you're making that decision on your knees, because, I mean, there's been so many things that I've done wrong, but yet my son has been protected. He is phenomenal. <laughs> I mean, of course, I'm a mother speaking, but I mean, he, I mean, he won the truth award at his high school last year. Um, his teachers absolutely love him. I've been told multiple times that they wish they could clone him. He's just a good kid. And I think, you know, especially with the connection that I felt that I had even before he was born, that there was a reason he came to me. I don't know why. I don't know if it's because he needed to go through certain experiences, but um, I think being able to recognize that it's okay, either decision you make is the right decision. Um, it's not something that's, you know, your father in heaven's not going to send you a baby and have, you know, <laughs> and have that be a horrible thing. Either way, he's going to have an experience. He's going to have a relationship with that child either way too. Um, right. 
And there's no guarantees either way. I've, I've talked to women that later on in life had placed a baby for adoption younger and had found the child and um, was upset because the parents had ended up getting divorced and the whole sacrifice she felt was for no reason because the child ended up in a single-parent family anyway. And But, you know, right. the child was able to do okay then. And so I think sometimes, and I think that, you know, Terrell Givens talks a little bit that way where, you know, you don't need to get so worked up about things that um, can be resolved in the next life, you know. And, and things that have happened along the way that have helped confirm to me that I did make the right decision, even if people don't think you did. It's okay. Right. And maybe to overextend this into other gospel principles, the whole concept is one is never, never compel people to do things. Offer people alternatives. Offer people other ways of seeing issues and other um, possible decisions that could be made. But in the end, encourage somebody to get their own answer between them and the Lord. Yes, yes. I think that's the most important thing is that you're making that decision on your knees. And it's between you and the Lord. I mean, there is, I think, and, and it could be on the other end where you're getting a lot of pressure for the right decision to be what somebody else wants. And and I definitely felt that. Um, but, you know, and that's one of the reasons why I knew I couldn't I, emotionally um I think for people that are that are struggling, you know, that are working with somebody that's in that struggle, I think it's very important to let that happen um, because you don't want them to live with the regret of something that you can't go back and change either way. I mean, once you bring that baby home and you start to bond with that baby, um, that's going to be profoundly damaging to say, okay, well, this was wrong. you got to take that. You know what I'm saying? Right. Or once right. they place that baby in another mother's arms, that needs to be the right decision. And so I think guilty it's wrong <laughs> that um, let them make that decision and have faith that they can. I think if you put um, faith in others um, and even in the child's ability to recover and be resilient from that. I mean, my son, um, you know, not everything's been bliss. He's had some struggles and, um, you know, but, but things have turned out well. I mean, his, his biological father's always been a part of his life, despite the young age of both of us. And, um, he has a lot of people in his life that love him, and so things can turn out well. Excellent. Karen Beecham, thank you for being on the podcast today. No problem. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Come thou fount of every blessing, to my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise Teach me some melodious sonnet Sung by flaming tongues above Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it Mount of thy redeeming My Ebenezer, here by thy great help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood precious blood
freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, clothed then in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry, take my ransomed soul away, send thine angels now to carry me to realms of endless day. To grace, how great a debtor Daily I am constrained to be Let thy goodness, like a fetter Bind my wandering heart to thee Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it Prone to leave the God I love Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above.